Hey everyone, welcome to episode 3 of Serial Access. Today's case is from Indiana, where I am actually from. The case was recommended by an individual that I see on an almost daily basis, and I am excited to learn more about this case with you guys and go over the things that he has done in his life. So let's go ahead and jump right on into this case. So today's case is about Herbert Ballmeister, aka the I-70 Strangler. Herb was an alleged serial killer from Westfield, Indiana. Authorities believe that he had killed in between 1980 to 1997 and that he had murdered up to 27 men in Ohio and Indiana. Whatever knowledge he did have in regards to the missing men, no one will ever know because on July 3rd of 1996, 10 days after investigators uncovered the skeletal remains of at least 11 victims that were buried on his property, Herb, a husband and father of three, fled to Sarnia, Ontario, where he had pulled over into a park and shot himself. Herbert Richard was born on April 7th, 1947, to Dr. Herbert E. and Elizabeth Ballmeister in Indianapolis. Herb was the oldest of four children from the doctor. The doctor was a very successful anesthesiologist, and soon after the last child was born, the family did move to the affluent area of northern Indianapolis that was called Washington Township. By all accounts, young Herb had a normal childhood. When he reached adolescence, everything had changed. Herbert began to obsess with things that were vile and disturbing. He developed a strange sense of humor and appeared to lose a little bit of his judgment from right and wrong. Rumors circulated about him urinating on the teacher's desk, and one time he picked up a dead crow that was laying on the side of the road, put it in his pocket, and laid it on his teacher's desk as well. His peers, though, they began to distance themselves from him due to his strange behavior and his morbid sense of humor. In class, he was a very disruptive and violent student. His teachers reached out to his parents for help. The Ballmeisters had also noticed an unusual change in their son's behavior. The family sent him for a series of tests and medical evaluations. The final diagnosis was that Herb was a schizophrenic and that he did suffer from multiple personality disorder. What was done to help the boy is unclear, but it appears that the Ballmeisters decided not to seek treatment, probably for a good reason considering the options that they did have. Herb continued in public high school, somehow managing to maintain his grades, but completely failing socially. The school's extracurricular energy was focused on sports, and the members of the football team and their friends were the most popular in the school. Herb was in awe of this tight group and continually tried to gain their acceptance, but was repeatedly rejected by his peers. For him, it was all for nothing. Either he would be accepted into the group or he would be alone forever. He finished his final year in high school in solitude. He had no friends, he had no one to hang out with, no one to talk to other than teachers and his family. 
1965, Herb attended Indiana University. Again, he dealt with being an outcast because of his strange behavior. He dropped out of his first semester. Pressured by his father, he returned in 1967 to study anatomy, but then dropped out again before the semester was over. But this time, being at IU was not a total loss. Before dropping out, he met Juliana Sater, who was a high school journalism teacher and part-time IU student. Herb and Juliana began dating and found that they were had a lot of things that were in common. In 1971, they married, but six months into the marriage, for unknown reason, Herb's father had him committed to a mental institution where he would stay for two months. Whatever happened did not ruin his marriage. Juliana was in love with her husband, and his odd behavior nowhere near scared her. She was completely head over heels in love with him. Herb's father managed to pull strings and got Herb a job as a copy boy at the Indianapolis Star newspaper. The job entitled running news reporters copy from one desk to another, so on and so forth. It was a low-level position, but Herb dove into it. Eager to start a new career, each day he would come to work immaculately dressed and ready to do his assignments. Unfortunately, his efforts to consistently gain positive feedback from the top brass became an irritation. He obsessed over ways to fit in with his coworkers and bosses, but never succeeded. Soured and unable to handle his quote-unquote, no-body status, he eventually left the position for a job at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. We call it in Indiana the BMV, just like everyone else does, but I know that in some states they call it the DMV or the BMD. Herb began his new entry-level job at the BMV with an entirely different attitude. At the newspaper, his demeanor was childlike and over-eager, displaying hurt feelings when his expectations for recognition were not met. But that was not the case at the BMV. There, he immediately came off as bossy and very over-aggressive towards his coworkers and would lash out on them for no reason. It was as if he was playing a role, emulating what he perceived as being a good superior and how he thought supervisory behavior should have been. Again, Herb was labeled as an oddball. Not only was his behavior erotic, but his sense of priority at that time was way off. One year, he sent a Christmas card to everyone at work that pictured himself with another man, both dressed in holiday drag. Back in the early 70s, few saw the humor in such a card. Raised eyebrows and talk around the water cooler was that Herb was a closet homosexual in a nutcase. After working at the Bureau for 10 years, despite Herb's poor relationship with his coworkers, he was recognized for being an intelligent, go-getter that produced results. He was rewarded with a promotion to program director, but in 1985 and within the year of his promotion he had so yearned for, he was terminated after he urinated on a letter addressed to the governor of Indiana, Robert D. Orr. The act also put to rest some rumors about the urine that was on his boss's desks months earlier. Nine years into marriage, Herb and Juliana started a family. Marie was born on 1979 
Eric in 1981 and Emily on 1984. Before Herb lost his job at the BMV, things seemed to be going so well that Juliana quit her job and became a full-time mother, but returned to work when her husband could not find steady work. As a temporary stay-at-home dad, Herb proved to be a caring and loving father to his children, but being jobless left him with too much time on his hands. And unknown to Juliana, he began drinking a lot and hanging out at gay bars. In September 1985, Herb received a slap on the hand after being charged with a hit-and-run accident while driving drunk. Six months later, he was charged with stealing a friend's car and conspiracy to commit theft, but managed to beat those charges as well. In the meantime, he bounced around to different jobs until he began working at a thrift store. At first, he disliked the job and considered it beneath him, but then he saw that it could be potentially really good money and be a really great moneymaker. Over the next three years, he focused on learning the business. It was during this time that his father died. What impact that even had on Herb was unknown. In 1988, Herb borrowed $4,000 from his mother. He and Juliana opened a thrift store, which was named Save-A-Lot. They stocked it with gently used quality clothes, furniture, and other used items. A percentage of the store's profit went to the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis. It quickly grew in popularity and the business was booming. It showed such a strong profit within the first year that Herb decided to open a second store. Within three years, the couple who had lived paycheck to paycheck were rich. In 1991, Herb and his wife moved into their dream home. It was an 18-acre horse farm called Fox Hollow Farms, an upscale Westfield area located just outside Indianapolis in Hamilton County. Their new home was a large, beautiful, million-dollar semi-mansion, which had all the bells and whistles, including a riding stable and an indoor pool. Remarkably, Herb had turned into a well-respected man. He was such a successful businessman, a family man who gave all to charity. What was not so ideal was the stress that came with the couple having to work so closely together each day. From the start of the business, Herb treated Juliana like an employee and would often yell at her for no reason. To keep the peace, she would take a back seat to whatever business decisions had to be made, but it took a toll on their marriage. Unknown to outsiders, the couple would argue and split up on and off over the next several years. The Save-A-Lot stores had a reputation for being clean and organized, but the opposite could be said about the way that the family kept their new home. The grounds that had always been meticulously maintained began to become very overgrown with weeds. The inside of the home was equally neglected. The rooms were a mess and it was obvious to visitors the housekeeping was a low priority in the couple's mind. The only area that Herb seemed to care about was the pool house. He kept the bar stocked and he filled the area with copious decor including mannequins that he would dress placed around to give the appearance that there was a lavish pool party that was going on. The rest of the house displayed the hidden turmoil of the marriage. To escape, Juliana and the three children would stay with Herb's mother at her lake 
Wawisi Condominium. Herb would almost always stay behind to run the stores, or so he would tell his wife. In 1994, the son of Herb, Eric, was playing in a wooded area behind their home when he found a human skeleton that was partially buried. He showed the gruesome find to Juliana, who in return showed it to Herb. He told her that his father had used the skeletons in his research and that after finding it while cleaning the garage, he had taken it out to the backyard and buried it. Juliana believed her husband's weird answer to why the skeleton was buried in the backyard. Not long after the second store opened, the business began to lose money and never stopped. Herb began drinking during the day and would return to the stores drunk and act belligerent to the customers and the employees. The stores went from being orderly to looking like a dump. At night, unknown to Juliana, Herb cruised the gay bars and then returned home and retreated to his pool house, where he would spend hours whimpering and crying like a child about the dying business. Juliana was exhausted from worry. Bills were piling up and her husband was acting stranger every single day. While Herb was a busy man trying to fix their falling apart business and marriage, there was a major murder investigation going on in Indianapolis. Vigil Vandergriff was highly respected retired Marion County Sheriff who in 1977 opened Vandergriff and Associates Incorporated, a private investigating firm in Indianapolis, which specialized in missing person cases. In June of 1994, Vandergriff was contracted by the mother of 28-year-old Alan Brizard, who she said was missing. The last time that he was seen, he was headed out to meet his partner at a popular gay bar called Brothers, and he never returned home. Almost a week later, Vandergriff received a call from another distraught mother about her missing son. In July, Roger Goodlett, 32, left his parents' home to go out for the evening. He was going to a gay bar in downtown Indianapolis, but never made it there. Both Browsard and Goodlett shared similar lifestyles, looked like one another, were near to the same age, and seemed to vanish within the route to the gay bar. Vandergriff made up missing posters and distributed to the gay bars around the town. In search for clues, the family and friends of the young men were interviewed, as were several customers of the gay bars. The only real clue that Vandergriff learned was that Goodlett was last seen willingly getting into a blue car with Ohio plates. He also received a call from a publisher of a gay magazine who wanted to make Vandergriff aware that there had been multiple cases of gay men disappearing in Indianapolis over the last few years. Now convinced that they were dealing with a serial killer, Vandergriff went to the Indianapolis Police Department with his suspicions. Unfortunately, searching for disappearing gay men was apparently a low priority. Most of the investigators believed more than likely the men moved out of the area without telling their families to freely live their gay lifestyles. Vandergriff also learned about an ongoing investigation into multiple murders of gay men in Ohio. The murders began in 1989, ending in mid-1990. Bodies had been found dumped along Interstate 70 and were dubbed the I-70 murders. Four of the victims had been from Indianapolis, Indiana. Within weeks of Vandergriff posting the missing posters, he was contacted by Tony Harris. That is a fake name, 
per his request, who said that he was certain that he had spent time with the person responsible for Roger Goodlett's disappearance. He also said that he had gone to the police and the FBI, but they disregarded his information. Vandergriff set up a meeting and in a series of interviews that followed, a bizarre story slowly unfolded. According to Harris, he was at the gay club when he noticed a man who seemed to be overly captivated by the missing person's poster of his friend Roger. As he continued to watch the man, there was something in his eyes that convinced him that the man knew something about Roger and about his disappearance. To try and learn more, he introduced himself. The man said his name was Brian Smart and that he was a landscaper from Ohio. When Harris tried to bring up Roger, Smart would become very evasive and change the subject right away. As the evening progressed, Smart invited Harris to join him for a swim at a house where he said he was temporarily living. He said he was doing the landscaping for the new owners who were away. Harris agreed and got into Smart's Buick, which had Ohio plates. Harris was not familiar with northern Indianapolis, so he was unable to say where the house was located. He was able to describe the area as having horse ranches and large homes. He also described a split rail fence and a sign that he could partially see that read farm something. The sign was at the front of the driveway that Smart had turned into. Harris went on to describe a large Tudor home which he and Smart entered from a side door. He described the interior of the home as being congested with a lot of furniture and boxes. He followed Smart through the house and out down some steps to the bar and pool area that had mannequins set up around the pool. Smart offered Harris a drink, which he turned down. Smart excused himself and when he returned, he was a lot more talkative. Harris suspected that he had snorted cocaine. At some point, Smart brought up receiving sexual pleasure from choking or being choked and asked Harris to do it to him. Harris went along and choked Smart with a hose while he masturbated. Smart then said that it was his turn to do it to Harris. Again, Harris went along and as Smart began to choke him, it became obvious that he was not going to let go. So Harris pretended to pass out and Smart released the hose. When Harris opened his eyes, Smart became rattled and said that he was scared because Harris was passed out. Harris was considerably larger than Smart, which was probably the only reason he survived. He also refused drinks earlier in the evening that Smart had prepared. Smart ended up driving Harris back to Indianapolis and they agreed to meet again the following week. To find out more about Brian Smart, Vandergriff arranged to have Harris and Smart followed when they met for the second time, but Smart never showed up. Believing that Harris's story had merit, Vandergriff turned again to the police but at this time, he contacted Mary Wilson, who was a detective that worked in missing persons and one that Vandergriff respected and trusted. She drove Harris to the wealthy areas outside of Indianapolis 
on the chance that he might recognize the house that Smart took him to, but they came up empty. It was a year later that Harris would meet up with Smart again. They happened to show up at the same bar one night, and Harris was able to get Smart's license plate. He gave the information to Mary Wilson, and she ran a check. The license plate was matched not to a Brian Smart, but to Herbert the wealthy owner of Save-A-Lot. As she discovered more about Herbert, she agreed with Vandergriff. Tony Harris had narrowly escaped becoming a victim. Detective Wilson decided on a direct approach and went to the store to confront Herbert. She told him that he was a suspect in an investigation into several missing men. She requested that he allow for investigators to search his home. He refused and told her that in the future, she would have to go through his lawyer. Wilson then went to Juliana and told her the same thing that she had told her husband, hoping to get her to agree to the search of the property. Juliana, although shocked by what she was being told, also firmly refused. Next, Wilson tried to get Hamilton County officials to issue a search warrant, but they refused. They felt that there was not enough conclusive evidence for a warrant. Herbert appeared to go through an emotional breakdown over the next six months. By June, Juliana had reached her limit. The Children's Bureau canceled the contract with Save-A-Lot stores, and she was facing bankruptcy. The fairy tale fog that she had been living in began to lift, as did her loyalty to her semi-deranged husband. What also had not left her mind since she first spoke to Detective Wilson was the haunting image of the skeleton that her son discovered two years ago. She made a decision. She was going to file for divorce and tell Wilson about the skeleton. She was also going to let detectives search the property. Herbert and his son Eric were visiting Herb's mother at Lake Wawasee. It was a perfect time for her to do it. Juliana picked up the phone and called her lawyer. On June 24th of 1996, Wilson and three Hamilton County officers walked out into the grassy area just feet from the patio area of the home that Herbert and his family lived in. As their eyes began to focus, they could clearly see that what appeared to be small rocks and pebbles all across the backyard where Herb's children had played were bone fragments. Wilson knew that it would turn out to be human bones, but the Hamilton County officers were uncertain. Fortunately, in less than a day, Wilson got a confirmation from forensics. The rocks were fragments of human bones. The following day, police and firemen swarmed the property and began excavating. Bones were found everywhere, even on the neighbor's land. In a matter of days, 5,500 bones and teeth were found in the backyard. A search of the rest of the property produced more bones. By the time the excavation was complete, it was estimated that the bones were from 11 men. However, only four victims could be identified. Those victims were Roger Allen Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, Manuel Resendez, 31. When police discovered the bone fragments in the backyard, Juliana began to panic. She feared for the safety of her son, Eric, who was with Herbert. So did authorities. Herbert and Juliana were already in the beginning stages of divorce. It was decided that before the discoveries that the police had made hit the news, Herb would be served with custody papers demanding that Eric be returned to Juliana.
Fortunately, when Herb was served with the papers, he turned Eric over without incident, figuring that it was just legal maneuvering on Juliana's part. Once the news of the bones being uncovered was broadcasted, Herb vanished. It was not until July 3rd that his whereabouts would be known. His body was discovered inside of his car in an apparent suicide. Herb had shot himself in the head while parked at the Pinery Park in Ontario. He wrote a three-page suicide note explaining his reasons for taking his life, and those reasons were due to his problems with his business and his failing marriage. There was no mention of the murdered victims scattered in his backyard. With Juliana's help, investigators of the Ohio murders pieced together evidence that linked Herb to the I-70 murders. Receipts provided by Juliana showed that Herb had traveled along I-70 during the time that the bodies were found dumped along the interstate. A sketch drawn from a description of an eyewitness who thought she saw the I-70 murderer looked like Herb. And what they did seem to figure out is that the bodies did stop showing up on the interstate the same time that Herb moved into Fox Hollow Farms where he had plenty of land to bury all the bodies and to hide everything that he was doing. Let me know what you guys think of this case. I can't believe I didn't know much about this case even though it is in Indiana and it was pretty much right outside my back door. I cannot believe that I went 26 years of my life without knowing about this case. Please remember that you can always suggest a serial killer to me by going to serialaccess.com and filling out the suggest the serial killer form and that emails directly to me. And remember that you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Serial Access and tell a friend or family member so that way they can suggest a serial killer for me to go over. Maybe it'll interest you and maybe it may draw my interest as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Serial Access. Please go ahead and give the podcast a rating on whatever platform you are listening to it on. That gives me the feedback that I need to see in order to improve the podcast for you guys.